Welcome to another episode of the One Golden Moment Podcast. This is Justice De Los Santos, as always. This is the sort of little bonus episode that I alluded to in the previous episode that I did with Rory. And instead of Rory being with me for this podcast, I'm going to be sitting down and having a conversation with Daniel Martinez-Crams of the Stanford Daily. Just to give a little context, we did talk before the Cal-Stanford game on Super Bowl Sunday. So we do allude to the Cal-Stanford game and our predictions on that, and I think it's going to be fun to listen to in hindsight, but we hit upon a lot of very general subject matters, such as how we sort of viewed each other's team, the direction of where we think our respective teams are going, and more. So just a little disclaimer for how this episode is sort of going to shake out. So enjoy. And we're back for part two. I'm here with Daniel Martinez-Crams of the Stanford Daily. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. And you made the trek all the way out here from Palo Alto, so I gotta give you some props for that. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Great game today, and always fun to talk about Stanford Cal. But uh, speaking of the great game, as me and my partner Roy alluded to on the last podcast, this is the same day as Super Bowl Sunday. We gave our thoughts on it. I want to sort of get your your thoughts on it. A little bit ridiculous. You want a rivalry game. You want a huge crowd, and and obviously with it being Super Bowl Sunday, that's gonna depress how much people, how much energy we can get in the stadium. But it is always a lot of fun, and I still think there's going to be that atmosphere. And uh, poor planning. We, we've seen some poor planning in the past, but, you know, at least we got this. and excited for it. And as I mentioned right before we started recording, last year's Cal-Stanford game, the very first game of conference play, December 30th, and no one was there. And I believe Stanford's head coach was basically saying something along those lines, like, yeah, I kind of wish we had student turnout, especially for a game of this magnitude. The students are back, you know, school is back in session, but, you know, a certain Cal quarterback is going to be in the spotlight. So so we'll see. I know that Matt Bradley did say he expects people to maybe, like, be on their iPhones, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, a game doesn't obviously won't start until after this one's finished, but the pregame, it's always fun for Super Bowl Sunday. You got your guacamole, you got your friends around, you want you want that little moment, but you said it was the gold-out game. You expect people to be there, and it's sad to see them schedule it where they did, but I think we can make it work. Yeah, I know that last year's gold-out game was against Arizona, and I found it interesting because that team, you know, tournament-bound team, they won the conference, DeAndre Aiden, Alonzo Trier. And that game, it was on a Thursday night, but it was only like 7,700 fans. But this game's on a Sunday, and this is Stanford Cal. So I'm interested to see like how the discrepancy from year one, or from not, not year one, but from how last year to this year sort of goes. And you never really know, because you might have those diehards, and you might have the Stanford fans as well. Or you could have a situation where it's, it's 7,000 or less. So we shall see. And getting 7,000 out to a Stanford game at Mabel's Pavilion is, is a treat. We rarely see that. So uh, <laughs> whenever, whenever we get numbers that high, we're, we're always looking forward to it. But I know, Cal, you're used to high turnout. and uh, relatively, relatively, relatively speaking. Bigger school, more students that can show up. So uh, Yeah. I, I know I have a few friends who are coming to this game. So it's, it's been a, a while since the, the Ivan Rab days. So <laughs> Yes, and uh, going back to those Ivan Rab days, like those, that's the peak of Cal really basketball in the past 10, 15 years. And yeah. Had some really pr- pretty impressive teams back then. And I was mentioning this uh, um, on the first part of this podcast. It doesn't, just because, well, I, I think this is a good segue into how we view each other's teams. It doesn't really feel like just in the time that I've been here at Cal, that Ivan Rab was even here just because we're like so far gone from that era. You know, the past two seasons we've had up to this point 13 combined wins I believe maybe like 39 combined losses in that era. It doesn't even feel like this is a school that can bring in a player of Rab's magnitude. So with that being said, I'm a little curious to get the outsider's perspective. 8-24 and 24 last year, 5-15 and 15 this year, currently on a nine-game losing streak, 0-8 in conference. So what's sort of the outsider view? I can't imagine it being that good. I mean, Cal recruiting is definitely a decline from the days of players like Ivan Rabb were around and a lot of that can be attributed to a little bit of coaching turmoil. I know you've had quite a few head coaches in the past few years and that's always tough to get recruits to buy into a system that they're not sure they're going to see finish out and and there's a lack of identity at the moment most certainly. I, I know you would claim that you're a defensive team but not putting up those 
numbers, not having that pace to really defend the entire game, and definitely not having the offense to even outscore an opponent in a typical setting, even with uh, what you would claim to be a good defense. So a lot going wrong, but... To say nicely. <laughs> to say somewhat nicely, but, you know, like, that's a lot of the conference right now. That's a lot of college basketball. You have your ups and downs, and you can, you can create that. You can create an identity. You can win games somewhat. You can find a way to win games, and, and I think today's going to be a good example of that with two teams, neither of whom are very good. I think I have to give the edge to Stanford, but... Not not impressive either in either side. Yeah, to sort of hop along that point, the the whole defensive minded notion. It's a. I don't remember exactly where they rank heading into today. It might have changed after yesterday, but I think according the last time I checked, according to Ken Palm, Cal was rated like three hundred forty first in defensive efficiency, and you know last year you had Marcus Lee, Kingsley Okoro, and for all their deficiencies. They were a really solid pair of rim protectors. But then you see this year, you sort of have Andre Kelly and Connor Vanover, both of whom have a different set of flaws. Andre's being forced to play the five when he's a four. And then Connor's like 7'3", but he's 220. He gets bullied around very easily. So going back to sort of what Cal's identity is, that myself too, just even as a person who's watched a majority of these games this year, I'm not sure exactly what the identity is. I know that Viking Jones did say the identity was going to have to be toughness, but toughness in and of itself isn't going to be enough. It's not going to win you games. That's not going to just win you games. Like you do have to have a certain amount of grit to win games. Sometimes when a team goes on like a fifteen to one run, you got to be able to toughen that out. You got to be able to endure the tide. But it can't be a fifteen to one run because your team is simply worse, and that's something that. I think Cal's experiencing right now that other teams are simply better because they have an idea of what they want to do with the basketball in each possession. And that's the crazy thing too is a, a lot of times I just really don't know what Cal wants to do with the basketball. You see them run their off their offensive sets, quote unquote. They're very simplistic, a lot of dribble handoffs, very minimal pick and roll. Sometimes they'll force this has been one of my biggest criticisms of Viking, at least this season, is that he's forced Andre Kelly, who was recruited as sort of this point-forward type of player, into a very traditional big man, and that can only get you so far. Like, in non-conference play, when he was going against smaller opponents that he was simply bigger than, then it's like, okay, yeah, let him eat in the post, but now when he's going against, like, Chase Jeter, Zylan Cheatham, and possibly this afternoon, Josh Sharmer, or Oscar Da Silva, it's not going to be as easy, and sometimes you got to let him shoot, you got to let him hit that mid-range, and then on the defensive end... I said this on the last podcast, I don't think Cal should, at least this team as currently constructed, should ever run zone defense again. I saw in the Utah game, I think it was Parker Van Dyke or Riley Batten got three wide open threes, where even if someone was under the rim and sprinted to them in the corner, they wouldn't have even come close to contesting the shot. So the identity up is up in flux. I do want to get your reaction to this. Um... Jim Knowlton, the athletic director, did say that it is very unlikely that Wiking will be fired mid-season, and it'll probably be an end-of-the-season firing. And, and he also, when he did come to the Daily Cal to talk with our editorial board, he did mention there was a lot of alumni who were sort of calling for his firing. So what's your, on Wiking specifically, what's your sort of, what's your take on him? Well, going back to Cal hasn't had a lot, a whole lot of consistency in head coaching, so there is something to be said for having a head coach for five, six, seven. I know uh, I'm forgetting the name. The one who brought in Ivan Rapp, Conzo. Yeah, he like his last recruiting class was one of the greatest that Cal has had, and that was in his last year. And obviously, he didn't make it to actually see them come in, but it doesn't do you any good to have that long tenure if you're not bringing anything. And I think like, it's kind of funny that your athletic director is calling for or basically predicting his firing, just saying like it won't happen in season, but as soon as season ends, there's a possibility. And I think that says a lot about where Cal basketball is, where the fans obviously want Cal basketball to be, and that it's not there. It takes a lot for fans to ask for a coach's position. Like they putting on a hot seat like that is pretty serious. Um, 
it's like a sad, obviously, for the head coach to lose a position. Like these are people with jobs, but yeah, that, that's tough. Yeah, and he did give the very political answers when asked about it. You know, Wyken's a great coach. He's a great person. They're working hard on player development. You know, stuff of that nature. But I think one for me, when I view it, one of the biggest reasons that he hasn't been fired yet, aside from just wanting to wait it out, there's actually two. One is that this is going to be Knowlton's first major coaching decision since taking over as athletic director. But then it's also the financial aspect of it. If they fire Wyking right now, like right, if they fired him, <laughs> if after Stanford, whatever they do to Cal this afternoon, after that, if he just fires him point blank, they're going to have to pay off the remainder of this year, the next three years, and then pay off the replacement. And Cal is like, I don't know if you're aware, but they're like $400 million yeah, in debt. Yeah, athletic department's having a little bit of struggling. I heard you guys are going to get rid of Edwards. I hear like a whole lot of stuff is up in flux. But yeah, it's not, a really, it's not a great time for Cal athletics, financially speaking. And then there's all the whole like idea that if the program isn't playing well, then people aren't going to show up, which sort of feeds into that cycle. And it does bring in this whole discussion of like, do you just like nip in the bud right now or do you gotta like wait it out? I think Knowlton is gonna wait it out. He, and as Rusty Simmons in the Chronicle noted, he is gonna wait it out and see where they are at the end of the season. But I can't really envision a scenario where he's still the head coach after this season, unless it's purely a financial decision. And my, my friend was talking about this, that. If Cal really wants to bring in some new energy, they want to get fan, uh, fans to the game, bring in someone like Jason Kidd, who is going to be hard to convince him to come down to the college game, of course, but this is where he played his college ball. And he has he's a legend in Berkeley, and that's something that can get fans to the game, and it would definitely improve the team. He's a, like a pretty proven coach, and I think he could do a lot for a Cal team, and especially in bringing in fans and, I don't know, filling out Haas. Yeah, when Mark Jackson takes that Lakers job, <laughs> Jason Kidd will be searching for a job of his own. I think we've, me and Roy did talk about Jason Kidd. There's like the whole thing that would he really want to come back to college ball after being at the professional level, and especially with that Lakers job just so up in flux. But there's someone who I would have been interested in potentially taking the job, uh, a Vikings job, and that was one of his assistants last year, Tim O'Toole. Now, I, have, I don't know much about Tim O'Toole's track record just off the top of my head, but seeing this man on the sidelines, he's... And this is in the, in the nicest way possible. This man was insane. He's like stomping his feet. He's like yelling at his players. And sometimes you want to see that because one of the things I've noticed about Viking, especially in Haas, when he yells, he has the loudest voice in that whole arena. It reverberates through the whole arena. You know he's speaking, but he does it very frequently. He's not really the type to get into their, like on his players. And if he's, I can only imagine if like Bobby Hurley had like the deep voice of Viking. <laughs> so, regardless of who decide who will eventually take over as Viking's replacement, I think the the best hope, the most optimistic hope, is that it's someone for the long term because you see the major programs around the country, and the best programs around this country are based on coaches that have been there for decades, and especially in the Pac-12. You know, Sean Miller. Dana Allman, they've been around for a while, and they've had the ability to recruit, sell on the culture, and sell on a past history. Yeah, um, and Cal and Stanford and a lot of different teams are looking for that coach that they can stick with for that long time. I don't think any school goes into a hiring thinking, well, we'll do this for two or three years, we'll tank, and then we'll find a new coach. They want someone who's going to be there for 10, 20 years. Consistency really, really helps the team. I know Stanford across sports, tries to find coaches that'll be there for a long time. Tara Vanderveer, head coach of women's basketball, she's in her 33rd season. So having that consistency is extremely valuable, but it's not, you never, you don't know who's gonna be that consistent coach. And that's, that's tough, that's on your AD to find those people, but they don't fall out of the sky, or at least not, not where I'm from. So uh, <laughs> It's tough, tough to find a head coach, but once you find one, it can really, it can do numbers. That's why Sean Miller has had that success. He's been there for so long, and, and as you're saying, establish a culture. So that's not just a culture within the program. That's a culture within the school. Making sure people are going to the games. That whole energy that we were talking about earlier, it feeds into itself. When people start seeing a winning team, a winning program, they want to come support. 
Now, speaking of like a winning team and winning program, Stanford in the past two years since I've really started covering the like Cal and the Pac-12 as a whole, you know, coming into this season, you did have the loss of Reed Travis and then a couple of very solid role players in Pickens. So I think for me, I actually didn't expect KZ Opala to be the one who shines through, although in hindsight, I probably should have considering he's like this 6'9" player who can sort of do everything. I expected that player to be Dejon Davis, especially after, I think it was, what, the half-court buzzer beard against US, was it USC? <laughs> I believe so, yeah. So, to see Casey Pollard develop not only into one of the best players in the conference, but a potential lottery pick, I think it's been one of the few bright spots in this conference, especially when we expected that person to be like Chris Wilkes, or even Jalen Noel. So... The way that I sort of view Stanford is that, you know, you did have the, the major losses from last year and that did cut into the production of this year. And a part of me, I know it's going to be in Opala's best interest to declare for the draft, but a part of me really wants this core to stay together. I really like Cormac Ryan, obviously Dejon Davis. I think, you know, Oscar De Silva kind of like comes and goes from game to game. But I think if this was a team that stayed together for the course until Davis and De Silva and Opala were all seniors, I think that could eventually be a team that makes a tournament run. And it's unfortunate that, you know, he's going to get his money, he's going to move on to greener pastures, but I think it would have been interesting to see where that team could have possibly went. I mean, it's been a pleasure to watch KZ develop. Really, truly a great athlete and a great player. But, and like, they're all sophomores. Like, our core is sophomores and freshmen, and that's what's really exciting and he most likely will declare, and that's going to be a very, very tough loss. He does so much for this Cardinal team. But there was a game he was out, and there was a game, there's been games where he struggled, and I've actually liked the way that the Stanford offense has run without him. And I know that's surprising, and I told some of my friends at the Daily that, and they could not believe it. They're like, what is this hot take? What are you <laughs> talking about? And, and I even asked Haas about it, and he was like, he gave me a no but yes answer where it was very much like, no, no, we want the offense to run through KZ, but it would be nice if we could pass it a lot more and he didn't have to do dribble so much, he didn't have to create the plays for himself and there was a lot more ball movement and we could find him underneath and it was just a, a dribble and a dunk instead of four dribbles, five reverses, and then a fade away. And in games where KZ is off the ball a little bit more, where we do let Dejon Davis shine, and he is really a spectacular player and I really like, appreciated watching him this year, KZ does better. And that's more like the role he will have in the NBA. And he will go to the NBA. And I, people have him as a lottery pick. But his game still needs to develop. There's, he is a sophomore. And I don't think that many people saw him as like a two-and-done type of guy. That's pretty uncommon in the game. So a lot of room to develop for him. Truly spectacular. And he's helped the Stanford team in so many games that it's been Casey and Co. But Stanford does have something without him, and that's what I'm excited about. I want to get back to you know Stanford do having something without him, but I'm curious about what areas of, of his game particularly you think that he still has to develop a little. Is it handle? Is it? I know the, the free throw shooting, because I know that free throw shooting, especially with draft evaluators, they'll look at that more than what he's actually shooting from three in terms of being able to carry that from the college level to the pro level. So what are those areas that you'd like to see him develop both now and as he pursues his NBA career? His handle, his off-ball movement isn't where it needs to be. And in the games where he does struggle, figuring out why. And it's, you can't just disappear in those games that it's not necessarily because they're devoting three, four guys to you. It's because sometimes the shot just isn't there. So it's finding multiple ways to score. And he has so many different options. He is such a skilled player, but developing a few more moves. And of course, shooting below 70% from the free throw line. It's, we're seeing a lot of it in the NBA now, and it's really unfortunate, but that's just such an integral part of the game and such an easy way to score points that that puts him over the line. And that's, that's one of the many things that he needs to work on. So going back to the offense without Akpala, I know that I think there was the the Washington State game where he was out and then it was sort of the onus was on Davis and company to sort of take over. Do you remember that? Do you want to walk through that game specifically or do you want to go with like more of a, a broad approach to 
how they run with the offense without him. I mean, that game specifically, it just it's more ball. It's just not having to force it to one player every time, and it's so predictable. And a lot of times it works because KZ is better than a lot of players in the conference. But a lot of times it's stagnant. It's boring. It's not as productive by any means. So to get him to get him off the ball more, and like that Washington State game, it's just so many different players stepped up. It wasn't KZ with 25. It was four or five different guys with 10. And that makes for a lot easier game all around. To not need one guy to be hot and stay hot and stay on the court the entire game. To have different pieces to mix and match as the game sees fit so that if an opponent takes away one guy, there's someone else to step up. So for as good as Ogpala has been this season, do you think in a way that that could have potentially, you know, with him being such the superstar that he is, do you think that could have sort of put a cap on the offense's potential as a whole? Or do you think that without him, and even if he wasn't this superstar type player that was putting up 20 a game, that the offense would sort of be the same as what it is. And and that's and that's a tough question because obviously obviously the answer is no. Stanford wouldn't be anywhere near where they are without him. But there is a nice flow to the offense when he's not there. But there's as I mentioned, so many games where it's just been KZ dominating. And that's what Stanford's needed because he is that superstar for for the Cardinal. But it's nice for some games to have other guys contribute. And I think in college especially, that's really what you want to see. You want to see other guys getting minutes, helping their own draft stock so that someone might be able to come out or to show potential recruits that this is a program where we value everyone. So next year, a call is more than likely not going to be there. And it's probably going to be Davis and De Silva and Ryan and you know the incoming class of recruits. So I want to sort of get, you know, peer into the crystal ball a little bit. Imagine a scenario where Davis and De Silva are seniors, Ryan's a junior. What do you sort of envision the best version of themselves becoming? And where do you think Stanford can go during their tenure as players? If Cormac's healthy, Dave, uh, De Silva finds a little bit more consistency where it's not 30 points one game and held scoreless the next. And Dejon continues mostly for what he's doing right now. Maybe raises the assist numbers a little bit. Some stuff he needs to work on. But those three guys are a pretty impressive core. And between uh, their shooting capabilities for like a big guy like De Silva and a smaller guy like Cormac who can hit a whole lot of threes. And beginning of the year he was leading the team in rebounds because that's the kind of big guys we have. But with, with, with that core... NCAA tournament seems out of reach, to be to be quite honest. Just because seeing that out of Stanford is uh, a little bit too much in, in my dreams. Uh, <laughs> but but seeing something where they're competing for a Pac-12 title, that that seems more likely and and something that would really mean a lot to the program and I think help the conference too because conference is weak right now and it could be any team any year just because flukes happen in the Pac-12. That's what we've seen in across sports. And to have one team that could dominate would be a lot of fun to watch, but it's more likely to see that there's a whole lot of parity and someone makes it to the tournament, the Pac-12 tournament, and balls out for a few games. And of that young core, I would say the one player who's most likely to make it to the NBA is Davis. What have you seen in him from year one to year two in terms of improvement? And where do you think there's some areas in which he's stagnated or just flat out not improved? That's tough. Because um, I know that turnovers were a big issue for him in his freshman year. Yeah, and still are in his sophomore year. He is, what, at 67 right now to 84 assists. That's not a great ratio by any means, but Stanford is asking a lot of him as the one. And um, I, it's hard to put a finger on one specific yeah. thing just because I'm not uh, Jared Haas or professional basketball coach in any means. <laughs> but uh, I guess just having more confidence because a lot of times it seems like he doesn't want to be the guy. 
and I think as he gets older, he'll, he'll that'll help a lot. But also, Stanford needs him to step up now. So finding that within himself to to make those plays. So in terms of stepping up now, I think that's a good segue in terms of, you know, we talked about Apollo and De Silva and sort of where they, they've shaken out. And then we talked about the Cal defense a little bit and then the identity crisis as a whole. I think we can like get into a little bit of where we expected these teams to be versus where they are right now. I mean, let's, let's, you're the guest. Let's start with you. Where did you, where would you say you expected Stanford to be at this point of the season? Hovering right about 500. And I think, and that's exactly where they are. They'll have, I didn't expect the close game with Kansas. I didn't expect them to play so well in some moments, but I also didn't expect them to lose to some teams that they really should have beaten. And it's, it's tough to see Stanford compete for 35 minutes and then in the last five have lose their identity and to not finish games with the same strength that they began them. So I expected them to be 500, but I expected them to lose handily to the Kansases of the world, and I expected them to beat a lot of the competition that they've struggled against. I know that early on in the season, they were given like a really tough schedule. I think they played, what, Wisconsin? I think they played Florida, North Carolina, and then the Kansas game. The Kansas game really struck out to me because you just see that team, on, like that Kansas team on paper, and you see Stanford on paper, and you're, you're thinking, okay, they're going into enemy territory, one of the toughest road arenas in the entire nation. It's not going to be fun, but let's see how they compete. And they push them to overtime, and they nearly upset them too. And I think just from the outsider's perspective, seeing them being able to battle at that level, even if they can't sustain it over an entire season, just for them to rise to the occasion in that manner, that's an encouraging sign. And I think if you're a recruit, you know, recruiting is a, t- is a tricky situation, but I think those are the types of games where if you're in the building and you see that type of game, you're a little more inclined to be like, oh, they're building, some- they're building something here. Yeah, and it does look like we're improving. And then that's a lot of a lot of forward steps for the program. It does look good. If I was a recruit, I would love to see them battle Kansas, but I'd love to see them finish the game. I'd love to see them find it within themselves, have that fire, have that energy. But I also think if you're if you're a recruit with this mindset that that could be a, a positive, that I could be that person to step in at the end of the game. And I, I know that's asking a lot out of recruits, 18, 17 year olds, to say that, oh, I can be the one, I can be the one to push them over the edge against Kansas in overtime. But it is nice to see that they got to overtime against Kansas and and against like say North Carolina struggled mightily in the first half, played neck and neck in the second. So seeing them imp- like improve over the course of the game or make adjustments and that's been fun to watch. But then end of game struggles like why are we losing to Kansas? Right? That if you push them to overtime, then it's a 50-50 chance. You say right? It's a tie game again. It's a new ball game. Let's close it out. Let's win it. So that's what Stanford has to work on moving forward. And I would say the silver lining of that game in particular is that, as you mentioned previously, this is a very young team. And, you know, sometimes as a young team, you just got to take your lumps. And who knows, maybe next year that's a game where, based on prior experience and the experience they're going to have for the rest of the season heading into that, heading into next year as, you know, juniors and sophomores as opposed to freshmen and sophomores, you know, maybe that's a game that they could potentially flip and just realize, okay, we've been in this situation before and we know what it's going to take to turn that L into a W. That's a lot of what I saw in the Arizona game where we were leading them late, had like a five-point lead, and then it's somewhere it seemed like, oh, wait, this is Arizona. They're supposed to beat us. Like, let's take our foot off the gas pedal. Like, I don't want to make anyone look bad. Like, let's let up here. And they winded up losing that game. So it's just having that mindset that, no, we're here to compete, that it's not like we're here to upset every game, but it, it sense that we're in every game, and that's a tough change for a program to make, to being the underdog always, to being a team that's supposed to be in it, but I think that's what this young group can bring, that they can bring a fresh mindset to the program. And sometimes you do have to have a little bit of, a little bit of that ignorance a little bit. It's like, I'm not like that... You know, I'm not supposed to be here, so I'm just going to ball out and lay it all on the line. Like, I don't know any better. And, you know, you know, sometimes when you're a freshman and sophomore, you can have that a little more than opposed to when you're a junior or a senior. But then sometimes when you're a junior or a senior, it's like, 
sure you don't have that little youthful mentality, but it's okay. I've been in this type of situation before. Yeah, and that's what you're seeing at end of games where players are phased, they're not calling timeout, or they're confused about where to go with the ball next, or they're trying to run up the court and not take a timeout when that like, that's what they needed to do. They need to have a set offense. So a, a lot of that is, yeah, feeling on a situation and playing it for the, the third or fourth time, not the first time. So while Stanford has been in a lot of those close game situations, Cal, on the other hand, not so much. A lot of blowouts, a lot of... There was actually a streak of games where... They just snapped it, I believe, against Utah, but it was five games in a row where Cal both failed to score 60 points and, or I think it was it was 60 or 70 and shoot 40% from the field. It was a combination of both those things. So there hasn't been a lot of super competitive games during conference play. I think the USC game was relatively close. The UCLA game, although it ended up being a 15-point loss, it was kind of close, and that was a game where Cal shot 4 of 20 from 3. But then you see a game like Utah, you see a game like Washington State, where, you know, Cal and Washington State are the two worst teams in this conference, and then Washington State beats them by 23 and hands them their worst loss of the season. So while Stanford does have the benefit of being in those close games and you have those learning lessons, I'm a little concerned about what not only losing – can but do for Cal. What lessons do you take? Yeah, when you're getting blown out and run off the court every other game. The Colorado game was close. I got to give them that. They were down by like 18 and they came all the way back. But they did run out of juice. And, you know, when you're having to come back from an 18-point lead, that's sort of the the byproduct of that. So, you know, we, we, got, we talk about this whole thing about identity and lessons that are to be learned. I'm just a little concerned about what sort of lessons are being learned from Cal when especially for the players who are supposed to be this core, all they're going to know over the, for their next couple seasons is losing. And that's tough, and that's something for... It's hard for a coach to teach out of when it's all your players know is losing and all your players know is tough losses. That when they have a chance to win, do they know what that looks like? When they're going into next season, are they confident? Are they, do they think it's going to help to work the extra 30 minutes at midnight to work on their shot is because if they think it's going to be the difference between a 15 point and a 12 point loss, a lot's different than a two point loss and a one point win. So it's a lot of that drive that you lose when you're losing game after game. And it's, it's demoralizing for a lot of, uh, a lot of people. I've played on some little league teams. <laughs> we went one in 15 one year and at the end of the year it felt awful, but that you came back the next year and you wanted to win just as bad. And I think that Cal can have that culture shift. I don't know if it necessarily needs to come with a new coach or, or something, but it's, it's going to be tough for the rest of the season to start believing that they can really make something or, or that losing or to feel compelled to lose games by five, three, seven points, six points if that's different enough, that that's worth fighting for as compared to 15, 20-point losses when you're saying they can't score 60 points. And one of my biggest concerns that's sort of manifested as the season has gone along is the increasing likelihood that someone at some point is going to transfer. And some of these guys, their original destination wasn't even Cal. Darius McNeil originally committed to Iowa State. Connor Vanover originally committed to Memphis. And... There's, I feel like there's going to be a point where at least one of these guys is going to say enough is enough and I'm going to go place myself in a winning culture. Especially when some of these players, I know that Justice and Matt Bradley, they had both either, I think they had both gone to Utah or gotten an offer from Utah. And I think they're going to see, you know, just with the Utah example in particular, that, you know, Larry Kristoviak, he lost a lot of players from last year, this year, but he's still competing with the guys that he, do, that he does have. Granted, these are some talented guys, but being able to get the most out of the players that you do have, and then you look at a situation like Cal, where the sum is far less than the than its parts. So I think that's definitely one of my concerns. I didn't think it was going to be this bad, in, in all honesty. 
I think it, it was a little naive because, you know, I was thinking, okay, last year, one of the worst seasons in program history, 8-24, and 24, it can't get worse than that. But I think that was a little bit of the actual NBA basketball in me, where it's like, okay, we're going to have a draft pick come on, we're going to have the new guys, they're going to have, like, some spark. But that's not to say that the freshman class has been bad. Andre Kelly's been very solid in, you know, there he's kind of fallen off recently. Matt Bradley has shown some. Jacoby Gordon's kind of coming off the Achilles injury. And then Connor Vanover, he's shown some, but for some reason he's fallen out of the rotation. That's like a, a whole other topic of discussion. But it's not that the class, the incoming class in and of itself has been bad. It's just they haven't elevated Cal to where I thought that they could. And I, that might have been me putting a little too much pressure on them. But I thought at minimum just – like the returning core of Justice Darius and Juwan Harris Dyson, I thought that like them would have been enough to sort of at least get Cal to the ten win mark and Paris Austin as well because now Cal is a, an actual true point guard. But you know something that me and Roy reference on every podcast is Ken Palm's projection for Cal's chance at a winless conference, and right now it's hovering around the fifteen mark. So just just to see with like I knew it wasn't gonna be a great season, but a potential five win season. I don't know if anyone projected that. And you don't project that coming in, and that's why you have people transferring to Cal and not away from Cal. And I am interested to hear a little bit of your thoughts on what you can do to prevent guys from leaving. Okay, that's hard when you're having a winless potentially conference uh, conference season. To say to guys that, no, it's worth competing here. We have a legacy. We have a tradition. We know what we're doing next year, and it's not going to look like this again. Because very few of these players, if you told them that the next season is going to be just as miserable and upsetting as this one, are going to say that, yeah, this is something I want to do over. Just because that takes a lot out of an athlete to say that I'm here for personal growth, and it's okay if we get blown out. I still feel that I'm improving. Because a lot of these guys probably don't feel like they're improving. That they came in as high recruits and they're here in a program where it doesn't feel like they're developing. That they don't trust their coaching staff because they don't have an identity. So it's asking a lot out of someone to believe in the program. You're saying exactly what me and Rory say on a week-to-week basis. So the legacy part... You're going to notice it when you walk into Haas. There's no jerseys in the rafters. There's no banners in the rafters. They're on, like, the outside. Like, you can see them on the wall. But that's not the same as, you know, being able to look up and say that's our past. But in terms of the player development and the culture, that's something we've been very critical of the current coaching staff of. Because, you know, Justice has been more efficient this year, but he's kind of been the same player that he was, just on better efficiency Granted, there has been like a 20% increase from the free throw line, so that's something that's, you know, not something to make a small potatoes of. But I expected Darius to sort of emerge more as a player because he was going to be coming off the ball, that he was going to be able to be this efficient marksman, that they're going to run off screens, maybe be a little more effective on the defensive end because he doesn't have to expend all his energy on being a point guard when... He himself even admitted that he's not a natural point guard. But the one that's most concerning for me is Jawan. You know, he came into Cal as this very athletic, very raw player, but he did show flashes of his all-around potential last year, both as a rebounder and as a playmaker. He's not really a power rebounder, but just great instincts and in being able to out-jump people. And he still has that athleticism, but it's year two, and just flat out, he can't shoot. He's never made a three in his Cal career. He airballs a lot of the threes that he takes. And it's just, it's hard to watch. And he's just really stagnated on offense too. Granted, he, does, he doesn't get consistent run because he gets into foul trouble. And he is one of those players, you gotta give it to him. He's very high energy, he puts it all on the court. But when you see the three players who have been here from, for two years, Justice, Darius, and Juwan, and you see in the ways that they've stagnated, it doesn't really bode well if, one, I'm a recruit, but two, for their prospects to stay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, 
as I was saying, it's tough to convince a guy to come back the next year. And a lot of these guys seeing not their numbers improve, but their numbers regress. That's really tough. And that speaks to a lack of development. And it's hard when there's most of the team getting minutes. There's certain people who are getting minutes and a lot of people who are pretty low where there's a core that's well above 30 and a lot of people who are middling at like 10, 8, 9 for them to not get the on-court time but trust that they're improving in practice when they're playing against competition that isn't winning games. And to go back to Connor specifically, this is, he's one of the the more intriguing prospects that Cal does have right now because he is 7'3", and you know he does have to fill into his body. He's 220, and that's not going to really be sustainable over a four-year career. But we've seen him be like a stretch five. We've seen him block shots, not just based on you know out-jumping someone, but just having long arms and sort of just being there at the right time. But the past four games, he's essentially fallen out of the rotation. He hasn't eclipsed the 10-minute mark in any of the four games. And... For someone that can that does provide Cal shooting with rim protection, with rebounding, a lot of the things that they do need for him to not play. And for Wyking instead, during the I think it was the Washington and the Colorado game, they played Roman Davis, someone who I don't even think has hit 25% of his shots in his career. I don't even think he's averaging two points. To start Roman over Connor, Connor's someone's gonna who's gonna be the future of your program. Roman is just kinda at this point, he's just kind of there. That's where it gets into the whole culture and do the, does the players trust their coach? And it sort of leads into that idea that when you see everything that's happening, just on the surface, not even behind the scenes, I think the shoe's going to drop at some point. And that's when people start leaving and transferring away. But we don't know what's behind the scenes, or at least I don't, that it could be that Roman Davis worked worked incredibly hard in practice that week and deserved that start. And we, we don't know that. And it could be that Connor was slacking off and maybe he didn't deserve those minutes. But to see a guy who's getting 29 minutes against UCLA going four of nine, and then after that game, it's 19, 16, 8, 4, 6, 4, just tailing off incredibly. When he is productive, I think he's leading the team in blocks per game that – they need rim protection. They need that defensive person that they need to live up to their identity or they need to establish an identity that he's a guy who could give that to you, but he's not right now. It's just, you know, me and Roy talked about this a lot on the last podcast, but I just, I really try to figure out a rationale because I know these aren't just cogs in a the machine. These are people who have complex personalities and, you know, it's not just the head coach, it's the players as well. I know that Wyking did give the start to Roman because of the energy he provided in the Washington State game. I think he had like seven rebounds off the bench. But it's there's a fine line between wanting to reward your player and rewarding them to the point where it hinders the team. I think it would have been cool if Roman got more playing time in the next game. But, you know, when you're, placing, you're putting Roman in a position where... Oh, there's Matisse Stiebel, there's Jalen Noel, go crazy. Because he went one of six in that game. It, it's just a head-scratcher, especially in the Washington game, because, you know, Washington runs a fierce zone. Both Cal and Stanford felt that firsthand. And, you know, the soft, the quote-unquote soft spot of the zone is that the elbows. And once you get in there, it's a lot easier to work inside rather than, like, swinging it around the perimeter. And the one guy more than anybody on Cal who you can get that pass to because he's just so tall is Connor. And I think that would have been the perfect game for them to just like get it to him in the post and then let him go to work, either hit that mid-range because as great as a shot blocker, Noah Dickerson and Matisse Thibel are, they're not blocking like a 10-foot shot once that thing goes in the air. So just as that's one of the, that's a microcosm of the entire season that has just been incredibly confusing for me, just from like someone that covers the team, and I can't really imagine a legitimate justification for not getting him those minutes. I Maybe it's a coach saying that this game isn't winnable, so we're not playing to win, we're playing to get some guy an experience, which is really tough 
for a coach to make that call and not something you ever expect a coach to say, especially if that perception is widely understood in the, uh, in the team, in the locker room, for them to say that our coach doesn't trust us uh, to win this game. and Or else it's just bad game planning and bad coaching and not understanding the situation. And it's important for Cal uh, and for the AD to figure out which one it is so that that informs the next few decisions. That if this is a guy who the players don't trust and where players start transferring away, where recruits don't want to see being seen in this program, that's a reason to remove him. If it's a game plan thing where the coach just doesn't have what it takes with the X's and O's, that's a reason to fire him. If it's something where the coach is actually fostering a lot of hope in the locker room where players think that I can go out in any game and win minutes, that is powerful. If players think that they could really contribute, that every second they're on the court, they're giving 100%. But it's tough to say that's what it is right now because not seeing a lot of guys play with that much energy because that's it's asking a lot. So where do you think Stanford falls in terms of how their core and how the team as a whole views their coach? I think there's a lot of love for Haas. I think he's in his second season. A lot of these guys brought in with him. It's a very young team. Uh, some days it sounds like he'll ask a lot, and it seems like they know that, and they're, they're okay with that because they are seeing improvement. They are seeing themselves compete in tough games and if your coach wants you to work an extra hour and you're seeing it play out in the next game then you're like let's work two hours let's let's get a little bit closer to that end goal so we'll see him at the post-game press conferences and he'll be saying the same thing that they are that there's a lot of buy-in to the program there's a lot of we that he'll come out and after the players do and he'll say the exact same things and everyone is on the same page and everyone's working towards the same goal. And that's that's really powerful. And that's why there's a lot of hope in the Stanford program uh, because the players trust their coach. And I think sometimes that trust is almost as important, if not more important, than actually getting wins. Because when you're developing a program, when you're trying to build a culture, the wins are going to come and go. Regardless of the players that you have on the court, you're kind of at the mercy of youth and experience and stuff of that nature. But building a culture is not something that you can just bring in with a five-star prospect. That's something that takes time and it takes years. And just the impression that I'm getting, it seems that Stanford is in the midst of building a culture that even if this current core is not really destined for a tournament, it seems that if they can foster this over a long period of time, then the tournament run isn't potentially out of the question. Yeah, most definitely. I think Stanford is beginning to buy it. And there's a lot of a lot of games where one player will show up and everyone's happy for that guy. It's not that, oh, I went one for five, but this guy went seven for 11. And it was huge, and that's why we won the game. And people are feeling that, and they, they want to make that extra pass. And it's building it with the fans as well, where there were few years back, six, seven years ago, where Stanford fans really showed up to basketball games, men's basketball games. And it's been slowly building over the course of this year. And there's there's a lot of giveaways. There's a lot of free Chipotle, <laughs> a lot of free t-shirts, a lot of a lot of free water bottles. But it's getting people to the games and it's the sixth man saying outrageous things, but getting the crowd hyped. And it's that's honestly an underrated part of college basketball culture that there's some student sections especially over on the east coast with some of these dominant programs where there are crazy fans who are camped out days in advance who are painted for every single game and then there's a lot of pac-12 programs where it's partially empty student section and that's part of building a program that they need everyone to buy in they need the team to buy in and the team is buying in and now it's starting the fans buying in and recruits buying it and that's what how you get to an ncaa tournament well in terms of that students showing out like look no further than haas and like see how the sort of the negative repercussions of what it what it sort of the antithesis of haas 
because you, you walk in Haas Pavilion and just if you just close your eyes and listen and just sort of feel out how the game is it doesn't sometimes it doesn't really feel like a basketball game is going on and just the vibe that's in the arena especially when there's all this losing happening it just doesn't it feels like the opposite is sort of happening at Cal that there's you know there was a storied history that's sort of dwindling over a period of time and there's a part of me that's thinking no matter how many gold out games they have no matter if they were to do the same thing if they were to have those giveaways I don't think that Viking has fostered enough of a buy-in or enough of a trust, not only with the players, but with the fan base, and he hasn't convinced them that they're truly building something, that it would convince them to come to games. Because we, we kind of joke a little bit, but like Cal fans are a little, little fair-weather in a way, especially since over the past several years, you know, the football team, the basketball team. But sometimes it's not just about the actual wins and losses as we were saying sometimes it's just about hope and if you can sell the fans on hope sometimes that's all you really need and you can say okay we might lose this game but justice had a great game you know he's been putting up 20 points over the past five games we're building something there Darius is shooting 40 percent from three we're building something there and that's something that we really haven't seen with Cal so we have you know Cal and Stanford have been rivals for a long time, but its I don't think it's been as polar opposite as it is right now than it has been in a while. And it's usually in the other direction, that Cal does have a storied men's basketball history, and Stanford will once in a while have someone drafted. They had the, the Lopez brothers, and that's been about it with, for his turn at Stanford um, in the NBA. But going back to culture... I was in hospital in the night women's basketball game and there was a lot of tension. It wasn't fans screaming and it wasn't fans trying to change the outcome of the game. It was just fans who were scared for the outcome. And finally they hit that game winner and everyone burst and everyone had that moment and hostages there's bedlam in it. There was absolute excitement because I think the fans wanted that feeling. They wanted to let it out, but they didn't know if they could. And that's, a, that's part of culture. That's having a place where it's okay to be rowdy. It's okay to go all out for your team. And it's hard to be so passionate for a team that you don't expect to, to win. But if it's a team that you have hope for, or you're screaming for justice, you're screaming for Darius, that gives you a lot more hope that you could have a connection with those guys. And that's, that's building hope in the program. And there have been a few moments where you know the crowd will get into it cow will go on a run and that place will get loud because it can seat like eleven thousand people and when that place gets loud it's rocking and i'll feel like i'll physically feel just like the reverberations of all of these thousands of people when i'm writing and like i kind of feel off that too just as i'm writing my story like i gotta i gotta match the energy here and i think it's the same with the players when they feel that energy they feel the need to match the energy but that feeling, especially with Cal men's basketball, has just been very few and far between. I would say the peak of it, in terms of just you know fans getting up out of their seat and cheering on their team, wasn't actually Cal. It was the U of A game when the, they started chanting U of A. And I'm like, am I in Arizona right now? And you know, there was the San Diego State game where Justice hit a big three and Matt Bradley hit a big three. And you know, you were sort of teased with how, like the, the potential of what Haas could be in terms of home court advantage. But, you know, just as someone that has covered the team and has been to a lot of games, I hope today provides a little bit of some spark, especially with it being the gold out game. But, you know, the natural pessimist in me wants to be like, okay, people are probably gonna wait in Buffalo Wild Wings, get their stuff and then go. They're probably gonna be at Pappy's, they're probably gonna be at Kipps. So, I don't know. We shall see how today's game goes. And you want there to be that energy in the rivalry game with both bands there, with all the energy that could be there. And it's so much fun when you do have this amazing story rivalry between Stanford and Cal. And it's fun to see it play out. It's fun to see it play out in football. It's fun to see it play out in basketball. And that's we have a really great opportunity here for today. I'm, I'm hopeful. Because I want a great game. I want that atmosphere. 
But if we are talking about dichotomy, Arizona fans showed out to the Stanford game, and they were chanting the same U of A, and the sixth man was there for Stanford yelling right back. And it sometimes they did drown them out, and that coincided precisely with Stanford going on a run or making a nice play, and it's, it was the fans first, and then it was a nice play, and it was players feeding off the energy that the crowd was providing. Not so much on the during the Cal game. It was a lot of strict U of A. Uh, to get back to Haas, though, I know that he wasn't part of the, at least I don't think he was part of the recruiting for Reed Travis, but I think that's him as a particular example is someone that you could sell the fan base on and you could sell players on because by year four, he was a completely different player than when he got there. Granted, he did take the player that he became and then went to Kentucky. But if you can not only sell your fans, but the players on, you know, we're going to inherit you and this is what you're going to become, I think that goes a long way. But while, you know, with with Viking, it's like you brought in Justice, you brought in Darius, you brought in Jawan. It's like here are who you came as and you're kind of the same person as when you left. And it's a lot different than KZ coming to Stanford and after two years being projected as a lottery pick. And that's a lot easier to sell people on that after two years they'll have enough development or enough development for the NBA to take seriously take serious looks at them and uh, it's, it's coaching and it's player development and that's something that can be worked on and that's something that can be improved and that's not where you have to rely on someone else for recruits for example for like they have to choose your school this is something that you can control you can, can control what your team does in practice you can control what the mentality is during the game. And all of that is how you start building back up again with things that you can't control. And the things you can't control, like recruiting, they'll start coming. So we're about hitting the, the hour mark here. And I think a good way to wrap this up would to project both how the rest of this season might turn out for both of our respective teams and what the next couple of seasons could potentially look like with the players that are on this team and potentially with the incoming class so again I'll let you sort of go first and how do you project the rest of this season going for Stanford um, Stanford's got an entire Pac-12 slate ahead they're sitting about 500 in terms of record I think it's gonna be a lot more of those games where they look amazing and those games where they really struggle um, so that that's that's to be seen and I, I do think they'll finish right around 500 they had a really hard non-conference schedule so that definitely depressed their record but they won't have it this year they'll have a lot of room to grow on next year and i think they'll do better next year i don't know what the non-conference schedule is but i think they'll have another opportunity to compete and show out on the national stage and when the sophomores like dejon davis become seniors in two years i think that's when we should really start paying attention to stanford basketball nationally and Maybe they'll make an appearance in the rankings. Maybe there'll be a little bit of preseason hype, and we'll see, we'll see a Pac-12 team actually get ranked. Uh, that'll be a fun treat for us. But I think Stanford has the potential. There's a lot of room to improve, and that's what's exciting, that it doesn't feel like they've hit their ceiling yet. It feels like they're still pushing towards it. For Cal, uh, I think at this point it's hoping that in terms of just if, from like the fans' perspective, that they don't go winless in conference, I think that's sort of where they stand, and I think that tells you everything you need to know about where this season is headed. You know, as I mentioned, the big concern about whether some of these guys are going to transfer, but I think with a new regime, that could potentially be exactly what some of these guys need in terms of maximizing their full potential. I hope that if Knowlton does fire Wiking and seeks out a different coach, that he does his due diligence instead of doing the, the Konzo to Viking thing where it took like a month. But, I don't know, we shall see. You got a, a score prediction for today's game or outcome prediction? It's going to be close. And I think that might surprise some people. It may not surprise some people, but it's a rivalry game. And both teams are going to show out. And if there was a day for Cal to get a conference win, it would be today. Because they're at home, they're against the rival. I don't think it'll happen. I think it'll be closer to 65, 61, but um, 
I think it'll be a day that's going to be fun for both teams. That they both feel like they really competed and they participated in this rivalry, this amazing rivalry that we have here, this Battle of the Bay, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, we shall see exactly how this turns out. Daniel, thank you for coming in, my man. I appreciate it. Thank you. This has been an absolute pleasure.